Bezras Hashem, we should all be zoicha to prepare ourselves uh, to receive HaKadosh Baruch Hu's uh, Torah. We know that uh, the whole period of Sviras HaHimera is to create a connection between Pesach and Shavuos, to make it one long holiday. Uh, in fact, Ramban actually writes that uh, the period between Pesach and Shavuos is like Chol HaMoed. It's as if to say Pesach is the first part of the holiday, and Shavuos is the second part of the holiday. And the counting of the Omer is one long Sfiras, uh, one long Cholomoet. Now you've got to be careful if you tell your boss uh, you don't work on Cholomoet and then you don't show up for seven weeks, uh, you may get in trouble. But uh, spiritually, it's like a Cholomoet because it connects the Yom Tov. And what is the underlying lesson? The Sefer Achinuch says the underlying lesson is that freedom is not an end in itself. Pesach is Man Cheruseinu. And Shavuos is the Zman Matan Torosenu. And the idea is that freedom without Taira is just the freedom of a wild animal. It is not the freedom that truly allows you to become what you were supposed to become. Uh, and that is why Chazal say the, the grain offering on uh, Pesach is the Omer, which is barley. Barley was typically fed to animals. On Shavuos, the grain offering is wheat, which is fed to human beings. Pesach, without Shavuos, we're just an animal. With Shavuos, we now become human beings. Uh, there was an Indian poet, Tagore, Ananju, who once remarked, and he was not talking about Judaism or Torah, he was talking about life. And he once remarked that a human soul is like a violin string. There's beautiful music within our soul. But if a violin string is totally loose and it's not tied down, you totally free. You can't get any music from it. You can only get music when it's tied down. And that also means the human being is full of music, full of beauty, full of holiness, full of goodness. But until it ties itself down to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will, it's like a loose string on a table that's not able to express uh, the beauty within. So that is why we have to have Sphira to connect Pesach and Shavuos. I think I may have mentioned from the Yishbitzer was a fa- famous Hasidic Rebbe. Uh, Shlomo Kalbach likes to use him a lot, but uh, he was uh, the Rebbe of Rav Sadok. That this is one of the reasons, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons why we eat an egg at the Seder, it's not a halacha, but it's a minam to eat a hard-boiled egg at the Seder, is that a chicken or a bird, a bird is born in two stages. Uh, First, the egg is laid, and then the egg is hatched, unlike mammals that are born live. Now, here the important lesson is that the Jewish people are like a bird. We were born in two stages. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was the birth of Am Yisrael, but it was only the laying of the egg. The hatching of the egg is Matan Torah, and therefore the concept would be we don't celebrate freedom as our real beginning. Freedom was the first step to a two-step process. And the second step is the step of Matan, of Matan Torah. Now, let me point out that there is nothing intrinsic to Svira that would make it a sad period. I mean, if we were to ask ourselves, what was the mood that Hashem intended in the Torah for us to have during the counting of the Omer? It's not a sad period, it's a happy period. You're, you're looking forward to getting the Torah from Hashem. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
It is not endemic, it is not intrinsic to Svirasa Omer that it be a time of sadness. And yet we do know that in the course of history, it became a bit of a sad time. Uh, we don't have weddings uh, during the Omer period. We don't cut hair during the Omer period. Uh, we don't make the Shechianu bracha, etc. Uh, the custom is not to listen to music. Again, different shilas, uh, live music versus recorded music, a cappella, all sorts of different shilas. But as a general rule, you don't listen to live music. That much, I think, is a relatively safe point. Now, as you know, there are many, many customs, meaning don't confuse the counting of the Omer with the mourning, the avelus of the Omer. The counting of the Omer is, of course, for 49 days. No question about that. The mourning of the Omer is only for part of that 49 days, and there are at least six minhagim, actually more than that. Uh, some people keep the mourning from the second day of Pesach, at the beginning, up until, well, actually, Svardim, I've interesting, Svardim do not have anything special for, I mean, they celebrate Lag Bomer, but Lag Bomer does not permit weddings. Svardim actually have to keep the wedding restrictions for a full 33 days, and they're only allowed to get married or listen to music on the 34th day of the Omer. Okay, people don't realize that, but that's the sheet of Rabbi Yosef Cairo in the Shulchan Aruch, that you have to keep mourning for 33 days, and on the 34th day and onward, everything is permitted. That's the minig of Sephardim. Ashkenazim have many different variations. Uh, one minig of Ashkenazim is they start the morning on the second day of Pesach, and they go up until Lag Omer, and Lag Omer onwards, everything is okay. You can make a wedding after Lag Omer. That's minog number one of Ashkenazim. Minog number two of Ashkenazim is that they start the morning on the first day of Rosh Chodesh Iyar, that would have been Sunday, and they go until three days before Shavuos. In other words, they go from uh, the first day of Rosh Chodesh Iyar until not including the third day of Sivan, and those are called the three days of preparation before the Torah is given, and they are allowed to get married or do other things from that point onwards. But Lag Omer is a hiatus. In other words, the morning resumes after Lag Omer, but Lag Omer is a break. There is a second minag that's slightly different. They start after Rosh Chodesh, the two days of Rosh Chodesh. So they got to make up two days, so they go until Erev Shavuos. They include... Gimel and Dalit, and they only allow it on Erev Shavuos. And once again, Lag Bomer is a hiatus. And a final minog is, some people do keep all 49 days. Uh, this is the Arizal. Uh, all 49 days, uh, they don't do any weddings or anything else. Uh, and Lag Bomer is still a hiatus. Lag Bomer is a break, but everything resumes. Right, so there are many, many different minhagim uh, and uh, what, what is Chabad Minig? I don't even know exactly which Minig. Uh, so you follow the Arizal. So this is the Minig of the Arizal that you do all 49 days. But you have Lagba Omer as a break, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the only Shita that doesn't have Lagba Omer as a break is Svardim. That according to Rav Yosef Cairo, you've got to keep 33 days of Avelos and everything is permitted only from Lagba Omer, Lamed Dalet, 
uh, the 34th. Okay, so these are many, many different minhagim. But I do want to mention a very, very fascinating psak of Rav Moshe Feinstein that I think uh, you should know about because it comes up a lot. And that is, what is the halacha if I am invited to a chasna that is in a permitted time for the chasna and the kala, but it's not for a permitted time for me? Uh, so, for example, let's imagine I either keep all 49 days or I keep from Rosh Chodesh. In other words, I, I, I follow the minute that you can't get married after Lag Baomer. Either because I start from Rosh Chodesh or I start after Rosh Chodesh or I do all 49 days. So I'm allowed to get married on Lag Baomer, but I can't get married after Lag Baomer. Okay. But I'm invited to a chasana where they only keep svira let's say, until Lagba Omer, and then they allow it afterwards, or Svardim, who will allow everything on the 34th day of the Omer. Uh, so the question is, am I allowed to go to a wedding that is within my Avelos period, my mourning period, but it's not within the mourning period of the Chassan and the Kala? So Rav Moshe Feinstein has a psaq, this is actually a very, very important psaq, that's the iser of marriage during Sphira is to get married, not to go to a wedding. He says there is no iser to go to a wedding. It's only an iser to get married. So as a result, as long as the chasana and the kala are permitted to get married during that period of time, I am permitted to go. Now you may ask Akasha, well, wait a second here. Even if I can go to a wedding, but what about the music? They're going to play music, right? So Rav Moshe says... Once you're allowed to go to the wedding, you're even allowed to listen to the music at the wedding. And not only that, uh, but let's say, uh, let's say a man needed, uh, felt he would not look so good without a haircut, he would be allowed to take a haircut to go to the wedding. I guess a woman too, if she needed uh, to cut, cut her hair. So this is a very, very important shayla because I guess maybe for Chabad it's even more important because if you keep all 49 days, you're going to get invited to a lot of chasnas that are going to be during your mourning period. And you need to know that Ramosha does allow you to go to the wedding and to even dance and listen to the music, uh, etc. And uh, that's not nichlal in your history. Now, the implication is, though, that if the chasna and the kala are doing an avera, let's imagine that they're not from, they're not religious, and they're just making a wedding in the middle of the month of Eeyore, which is forbidden according to everybody, so the implication is you should not go to that wedding during the Omer because it is a forbidden wedding. It's a wedding that they're not allowed to do. But some people argue even with that. Some people say that, hey, they're doing an Avera, but we're not going to punish them by saying they can't have guests. Now, don't compare this to an intermarriage. I mean, if, God forbid, you had a Jew and a guy getting married, we wouldn't say, oh, go ahead and you know, make a simple for them. But for Svira... Uh, it's, it's not obviously not as severe as, God forbid, an intermarriage. So some posts can say that even if the marriage is forbidden, you're allowed to go. All right, Ramosha does not, impl- he doesn't say, but he doesn't imply that. The implication of his words is you're only allowed to go if it's a permissible wedding, which again, if it's a religious couple, you assume that they're making the wedding at a time when it is permissible uh, for them. Okay, so this is uh, an important uh, psak. Uh, that I think people uh, need to know in terms of going to a wedding uh, during Svira. Also, people always ask the question, are you allowed to buy things 
during the period of the Omer. So let me, let me just clarify something. There is no halacha that you're not allowed to buy stuff during Sefirah. The halacha is this. There is a minhag that you don't make a shecheyanu bracha during Sefirah because it's a sad time of year. So mimela, what that means is you don't buy the items over which you would make a shecheyanu bracha. So when do you make a shecheyanu bracha? So it really depends. Uh, a lot of time, a lot of people will make a shecheyanu when they buy new articles of clothing. So if you are a person, the reason why I say some people, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment, if you are a person who makes a shecheyanu when you buy new clothes, then you should not buy new clothes during Sefira. But if you're a person who does not make shechiyanu, I'll explain why in a moment, who does not make shechiyanu on new clothes, you don't have a problem. So it's not the buying that's the problem, it's the shechiyanu that's the problem. Now, why do I say some people don't? Because like this, the Shulchan Aruch does indeed say when you buy new clothing, generally you should make a shechiyanu. There are some exceptions. For example, shoes, leather shoes. Leather shoes, we do not make a shechiyanu because an animal had to be killed for that, uh, for underwear, stocking, socks, we do not make shechianu because that's not a, a festive thing. Uh, but for other articles of clothing, if it would be a, a suit for a man or a dress for a woman, uh, we would normally make a shechianu. Uh So that's the standard practice. But some people don't, and I'll tell you why some people don't. Some people say that shechianu is only if you really, really feel excited about it. And in the olden days, uh, people were poor, they might get a new dress or a new suit, you know, every 10 years. So it was a real, real big, big, big deal. But for most middle class people, you know, they can get clothing with some frequency and clothing is not so expensive. So in other words, this is a difficult halacha to apply because they basically say it's very subjective, meaning if it's not such a big deal for you, some would not make the shechianu. Other, right, it's only if you're really, really excited over it and, and the like. So the point I want to make is it's not the buying that's the problem, it's the shechiyanu that's the problem and therefore you have to determine in your own life when do you make shechiyanu when you don't and you should talk to a rabbi or a rebbetzin uh, in order to get guidance over that halacha. Now, even the shechiyanu, however, is mutter on Shabbos. So the Sadavar Pashat you're allowed to buy a new dress during the Omer, and if the first time you wear it after trying it on is gonna be on Shabbos, you can make the Shechianu. In other words, the Yisra of Shechianu is only when it's not Shabbos, right? So Shabbos is gonna be mutter. So this idea that you can't buy stuff during the Omer is, is really not true, and what's happening is some people confuse it with the nine days, that's a different thing. We get confused with the Omer and the three weeks and the nine days, and they're actually different things. Swimming is another example. Uh, somebody asked me, are you allowed to go swimming uh, during the Omer period? The answer is for sure you are. Uh, the idea of swimming is, is borrowed from the nine, three weeks and the nine days. Now, during the nine days, it is usher to go swimming, usher. During the three weeks, it is mutter until you hit the nine days, but the minog is not to do it. But, but again, that's a different type of mourning. That's the mourning uh, over the Chorban Beis HaMikdash. That is not the mourning of Sphira. So it is important that you don't confuse uh, the three weeks with the Sphira Saomer 
there are different issues, okay? So that's uh, one thing to, to remember. If uh, you don't yeah. see Chef on your clothes in general when you get new clothes, can you wear new clothes during the owner? Yeah, absolutely. As, as I'm saying, the, the only problem is the Chef The problem is not the new clothes. So if you don't make Chef on new clothes, you can uh, buy them. Right? The problem is not the buying. The problem is the Chef And even the Chef as I say, is, is permitted on, on, on Shabbos. Okay, so the question becomes this. Why are we mourning? Right? I'm sure you talked about this, and I'll just maybe, and maybe add a little bit. So this is a mourning period, a period of Avelut. Not the whole period, but some of the period. So the truth is, number one, what's the source? So here's an important thing. It's not in the Mishnah, and it's not in the Gemara. There is nothing in the Gemara that says you have to mourn during the Omer period. The very first time we read about this is in the time of the Gaonim. Now, the Gaonim were the heads of the yeshivos, heads of the academies in Babylonia after the Talmud was finished, right? So they're after, oh, after the Gemara. And the Gaonim write already that in, in fact, they don't even write that everyone has to do it. They say in some places there were customs not to get married or cut hair during the Omer period. And this was to commemorate a tragedy, which was the deaths of the students of Rabbi Akiva. So, again, I, I want you to be sure you understand this. The deaths of Rabbi Akiva's students is in the Gemara. That is in the Gemara. But the Gemara does not use it as the reason for any Avelis. It's the Gaonim that took that historical fact and they used it as a basis for Avelis. What's the story with Rabbi Akiva? So this is... Uh, I'm going to go over the whole story because the whole story of Rabbi Akiva is a very, very fascinating, inspiring, amazing, and tragic story at the same time. Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd. He was an ignorant person. He didn't even know how to read. And he was 40 years old. And he was in the employ of the wealthiest person in Yerushalayim. This is after the temple was destroyed. His father-in-law, well, not sorry, his employer initially became his father-in-law. His employer was known by the name Kalba Savua. Now, that's really a nickname because Kalba Savua means a stuffed dog, a dog that was full. Those of you that have dogs know that dogs are never full, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They'll eat whatever you give them. Uh, But Chazal say this was an affectionate nickname that he was given because of his hospitality. He was such a hospitable person that even if you were a dog in his house, you would walk away full with food, which, you know, is almost impossible, uh, so to speak. And Kalbasvu was very, very wealthy. He had shepherds that he employed, and he employed this ignorant Rabbi Akiva, he wasn't rabbi then, to be his shepherd. And he had a daughter, and we know his daughter's name even. His daughter's name was Rachel, like Rachel Imenu. And Rachel had a crush on Rabbi Akiva. But it wasn't Stama crush. She saw in Rabbi Akiva greatness. She saw in him potential that he didn't even think he had. Right? But she saw something in him. And she wanted to marry him, an ignorant man. And her father was so angry, so incensed, that he made a netter, he made a vow that he would disinherit her, he would give her nothing. He says, you marry this man, you will live in poverty your whole life. He made a netter. 
And as a result, uh, Rachel, who had grown up in a, in a very wealthy home, was reduced to poverty with her husband, the shepherd. And she wanted her husband to go learn Torah. So she sent him to Yerushalayim to learn Torah. And she remained all by herself, an abandoned woman. And uh, Rabbi Akiva started with the first graders, learning how to read, etc. And he stayed for 12 years learning Torah. And at the end of the 12 years, he came to visit his wife, finally. And he overheard his wife having a conversation with a neighbor, where a neighbor just happens to say to her, what type of husband do you have who leaves you for 12 years? And she said, I wouldn't mind if you'd go for another 12 years. Rabbi Akiva heard that. He turned right around. Now, this is not a type of story that you should literally apply to your own life. It would not... Uh, uh, and, and people do ask the question, why didn't Rabbi Akiva say hello? It's a difficult thing to understand. But I actually think psychologically, if he would have said hello, he couldn't have gone back. In other words, uh, he, he needed to be tough. And she, and she wanted him to be tough in that way. Okay. Uh, although I'll tell you an interesting little tidbit from that afterwards. Okay, so he went back. Twelve years later, 24 years, he comes back. Not as the student, he's the greatest rabbi in Israel. Rabbi Akiva. He has 24,000 students. Can you imagine that? 24,000 students. There is no yeshiva in the world that has 24,000 students. And he alone had 24,000 students. And they're all coming. I mean, imagine, I mean, we've been at funerals that have more than that, but imagine if you had 24,000 people in the street, it would be pretty, pretty crowded. And they're coming. And this woman dressed in rags, his wife, comes to greet him. And the Talmudim think she's like a crazy woman or something, and they push her away. And Rabbi Akiva says, everything you are and everything I am is all because of her. In the meantime, there's an interesting story that at some point, uh, Rachel's father, Kalba Sabua, regretted that he made the vow. He regretted. <laughs> so he knew there's a procedure called Tataras Nazarim to annul vows, but you need to go to a rabbi to annul vows. So he hears there's this great rabbi who's come to town, not knowing it's his own son-in-law. And he figures he'll go to the rabbi and ask for a way to get out of the vow. So he says, you know, I have a daughter and years ago I made a vow that I would never give her anything, but now I see how much she suffered. Is there a way I could be released from the vow? So the way you release somebody from a vow is you identify a circumstance. If you would have known, would you have made the vow? This is even for minor things. Let's imagine you made a vow, you want to go on a diet, you made a vow that you're not going to eat chocolate. Not that you should make a vow like that, but let's assume you made a vow, I'm not going to eat chocolate. And then your husband or your mother comes and brings you a delicious chocolate cake. And they would be so hurt if you wouldn't eat it. So you can go to a basin and say, if I would have known that mom or my husband would bring me a chocolate cake, I never would have made the vow. That, that's Hattaris Tatarim. You can't do this on your own, but a basin can monitor the netter. So Rabbi Akiva asked Kalba Sabuah, if you would have known that your son-in-law would have been a Kamatalmit Chacham, would you have made the vow? So, so Kalba Sabuah said, Talmud Chacham, if I would have known he would know how to read Hebrew, I wouldn't have made the vow. 
So Rabbi Akiva said the vow is mutter. <laughs> so Rabbi Akiva mattered the vow. So here's the thing. Imagine, obviously, 24,000 people. Oh, I'm sorry. So what happened was these 24,000 people, they all died shortly thereafter between Pesach and Shavuos. The tragedy of the deaths of Rabbi Akiva students. Now, 24,000 people dying is, of course, a tragedy. But I can't help looking at it from the perspective of Rachel herself. Because imagine a woman who suffered 24 years, really, without her husband. Although they did have children, interestingly. I'm not sure when they had children, but they, they, Rabbi Kiva did have children from his wife. 24 years, poverty, loneliness. And finally, she sees the fruit of her labors. She sees the success. She sees what was accomplished. Can you imagine the joy in her heart that all of those years were worth it? Look at what was produced. And then what happens is everything is taken away. So just looking at it from her perspective, what a tragedy it was. I suffered for nothing. Nothing's left. Isn't there something left? It happened to be there were five students left. There was something left. And Torah was reconstituted from those five. But this was a tremendous tragedy. So this is the deaths of the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. Chazal say they died in a plague. There was a mysterious plague that broke out that killed them. And they died for 33 days or 34 days. That would depend on the different customs and the like. But here is the thing. Losing 24,000 people is of course a tragedy. Of course it's a tragedy. But to be honest, we've had worse. I mean, we had the Holocaust. There were six million Jews. We've had crusades. We've had pogroms. Meaning, you know, we don't have, to this day, we don't have a fast day because of the Holocaust. We don't say, uh, can't get married for a month because uh, in memory of six million Jews who died. So why do I keep on going over and over and over again? 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. What, what is unique about that? Again, of course it's a tragedy. But what is unique about that tragedy? That it becomes part of the halachic system that every single year we have to mourn and restrict our weddings because of the students of Rabbi Akiva. And the answer is there's a very, very deep reason here. If it would simply be a matter of mourning, then I would say, okay, we, we have worse things to mourn about. In fact, the truth of the matter is, it's been said, people do raise the question, why is there no fast day because of the Holocaust? How come? And the Briskarov answered, that Tisha B'Av is the fast day for all of the tragedies of Jewish history. When you fast on the ninth of Av and you think about the destruction of the temple and you think about Hashem's Shekhinah not being openly revealed in the world, that is the source of every tzara. And that's why, I don't know if you, you say it, but a lot of uh, places on the ninth of Av will say lamentations, kinos about the Holocaust too, things that were written later, and the like, okay? So, so why, why can't Rabbi Akiva students be, be included in Tisha B'Av? Why do they become part of the Omer? And the answer is, because the thing about Rabbi Akiva students is 
not only do we know the fact of the tragedy, we know the reason for the tragedy. And that is unique. Because most of the tragedies in Klal Yisrael, we don't know specific reasons. Somebody would say, why was there a Holocaust? So people could, could speculate. And even great rabbis could offer this explanation and that explanation. Actually, you may recall, the Rebbe himself was refused, refused to give a reason for the Holocaust. Uh, and he, was, he would actually get upset when people would try to say it was this Avera or that Avera. Because he said, you know, we, we don't, we, we're not Nevi'im and we, we don't have the right. But for the deaths of Rabbi Akiva students, Chazal give us a reason. It's not our reason. Chazal give us a reason. And the reason that's given is they did not show proper kavod zelazah to each other. The 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died because they did not show proper honor to each other. I'll try to explain that, but the point I'm making is this. We are not mourning an event because it is a tragic event. We are mourning an event because there's a specific thing that we have a responsibility to try to rectify and to try to fix. And for other events, we don't know what the specific lesson is. Like, what am I supposed to rectify after the Holocaust? We can come up with possibilities, but we don't know for sure. Here we know for sure. And that's why the morning of Sphira is not the morning over a sad event, but it's the morning for the purpose of tikkun, the morning for the purpose of rectification and fixing. Now, what does it mean they did not show proper kavod for each other? Rabbi Akiva was the greatest rabbi of the generation. To be a student of Rabbi Akiva probably meant you had to be pretty great. You were not just a regular guy off the street. Rabbi Akiva himself taught, love your friend as you love yourself is the most important principle in the Torah. That was Rabbi Akiva's teaching. Wouldn't his students absorb that? So, if you would look at a student of Rabbi Akiva, our assumption is they weren't like pushing each other out of line. They weren't calling, oh, you're an idiot. Probably they behaved with derech eretz. They behaved with politeness. Rav Hirsch points out that kavod is a very interesting word. Kavod we translate as showing honor to somebody, respect to somebody. Rav Hirsch says the shorish of kavod, the root of the word kavod, is the same as kaved, which is heaviness. When something is kaved, that means it's heavy. So not showing kavod could be interpreted as not seeing the weightiness or the heaviness in the other person. Now what does that mean? That doesn't mean uh, fat, overweight, or heavyweight boxer, whatever it is. But heaviness is a term for significance. You see, I could look at a person and I could treat them decently, but I don't really see them as significant. It's as if to say, you know, there's nothing to like about you, but I love you because there's a mitzvah to love every Jew. 
That's the wrong attitude. The attitude is not, you're worthless, but I love you anyway because I'm supposed to love you. <laughs> That's not really love. Abbas Yisrael means you have to see the greatness in a person, the goodness in a person, the weightiness in the person, kavot, that they are significant. See the chashivas in a person. And for some reason, the students of Rabbi Akiva on some level fell a little short of that. Maybe because they looked at Rabbi Akiva as their role model. So they, 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 in other words, Rabbi Akiva was so above everybody that they couldn't see the chashivas in lower people because they only connected to the highest person as opposed to seeing the connection horizontally, so to speak. They only had the vertical connection. They didn't see the horizontal connections. This is sometimes a problem. A person has a great, great Rebbe. Sometimes it might be a problem. You can't see the chashivas in people below that level. Now, did they deserve to die for that reason? Okay, so it wasn't the highest level of Abbas Yisrael. So it's not so much they deserve to die, but the concept was they couldn't be the transmitters of Torah to the next generation. So Hashem took them. Because to be the one who teaches Torah to Am Yisrael, you have to be one who sees the greatness of Am Yisrael, the goodness of Am Yisrael, the godless of Am Yisrael. And if they couldn't see it, then Hashem says, you can't be my emissary, you can't be my shaluchim. You can't be the ones who will be the teachers of the next generation. So, the avoda, the spiritual work of Svirasa Omer, is a double job. On one hand, we are getting ready to receive Hashem's Torah. On the other hand, we have to do so through Avas Yisrael, through kavod, seeing the kavod of each person, to look at the beauty in their neshamas, to see the greatness of their neshama. You know, I mentioned this before that the Rebbe used to say, it's really such a beautiful remark. You know, in the, in the Jewish world, when we talk about bringing people to mitzvos, so we talk about kirav rechokim. Kirav rechokim means to take a person far and bring him near. Kirov Rechokim. Kirov is a shorthand. The word Kirov is a shorthand for the phrase Kirov Rechokim. It's a very common phrase. Everybody uses it. I use it. Uh, you know, people use it. It's just a common phrase. The Rebbe didn't like it. The Rebbe said, how can you talk about any Jew as being far from Hashem? Kirov Rechokim. Take the one that's far from God and bring him close. The Rebbe said, how do you know who's far and who's close? <laughs> maybe, maybe he's closer than you. Or to put it in a more basic way, every Jew is close to Hashem. Some know it, some don't know it. Some feel it, some don't feel it. But there's no such thing as someone that is rochaik from Hashem. And uh, it's a beautiful, a beautiful idea. That's the idea of kavod, of seeing the greatness and the goodness. Okay, so this is what Svirasheimer is about. Now, here is the interesting point. In some ways, these two aspects of Svira are operating in contradiction. One is to intensify my commitment to Torah, 
and the other is to intensify my Abbas Yisrael. Let me explain why there's a certain tension here. You often find in the world that as people get more and more religious, more and more observant, more and more strict in halacha, they sometimes become less understanding and less accepting of people who don't live up to their standards. They look down at people. They say, oh, you know, you're shagid, you don't believe, you're no good. And then you have the other phenomenon. People who are open, tolerant, accepting, forgiving, they might be soft and mushy in halacha. They say, sure, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, whatever you do is fine. Abortion, gay rights, uh, transgender, all of it is good. Everybody uh, should do what they want to do and uh, life will be great. So we often have this contradiction that the more religiously passionate you are, the less loving and open you are to other people. And then the other way around, the more loving and open, uh, the less uh, you know, passionate about halacha a person is. Again, I have to say that Baruch Hashem Chabad, to a large degree, I think, has managed to avoid those extremes. And that's a, that's a very, very great praise uh, for the Shluchim of, of Chabad. Uh, that's why I have tremendous, tremendous love and admiration for, for the, the rabbis and the rebbitsons that are on Shlichus. And again, this is one of the most important lessons of the Rebbe. In fact, the Rebbe said that he struggled with this. The Rebbe said he once asked his father-in-law, the Friedegger Rebbe, he once asked him, he said, you know, this thing about accepting Jews and being nice to Jews, you know, maybe you ought to be tough. You know, you ought to, the Rebbe himself said, maybe you ought to like tell them, you know, uh, they better get their act together or, you know, we'll kick them out. And uh, the Friedegger Rebbe gave him a whole marshal about uh, if you have a child and the child is uh, mentally impaired or has impairments, you know, you build him up by loving him, by loving him and having patience with him. And then he'll develop according to his abilities. And he told the Rebbe, the derech is not to reject people, to throw people away. You build them up, and in that way, whatever they're able to do, they'll eventually come to do. And the Rebbe himself, it was, it was very, very fascinating. The Rebbe himself said he had to like learn that lesson because he had, on some aspects, he had, at some point in his life, he was inclined to a different derech. And he says he got, the Rebbe said he got that from his father-in-law, that he had to have uh, this, this type of derech in life. So what Svira is really teaching us is, to use a bit of a fancy phrase, the perils of binary thinking, meaning we often have an either-or. It's either this or it's that. And Svira Sa'imer says, you got to do both. you got to be firm. you got to be strong. you got to be uncompromising in halacha. you got to keep the mitzvos, uh, no matter how difficult it is. And you don't compromise on things. And at the same time, you look at every Jew, and to some degree every human being, with rachamim, with love, with compassion, with forgiveness, with understanding of their struggles, and try to reach them where they are. And you don't have the attitude, I'm either this or that. The answer is you've got to be both. You have to be, you have to be both. And that's why Sviras Haimer Bedavka combines the theme of getting ready for Torah with the theme of remembering the students of Rabbi Akiva and trying to rectify the not showing kavod, kavod zelazem. Okay, it's a beautiful thing to think about uh, in our own Yiddishkeit. And of course, part of the way you do this is to recognize 
that when you're passionate about Torah, Torah includes the mitzvahs of Abbas Yisrael. <laughs> I'm passionate about Torah. Well, okay. So I'm passionate not only about kosher and Shabbos, I'm passionate about Abbas Yisrael. That's part of Torah too. Right? Uh, they tell a cute story. There was a Hasidish Rebbe, the Aptorov, who wrote a sefer, Ohev Yisrael, because his theme was Abbas Yisrael. And he said, every parsha of the Torah, we can find a remez to Abbas Yisrael. So somebody asked him, what about Parshas Balak? Where Balak uh, hired Bilam to curse. Now, I, I, don't, I really don't understand the catch. I think there's actually plenty of references to Abbas Yisrael. Matovu, Allah Yaakov. Okay, but this was the question. So the Aptorav said this. Oh, I'll tell you. Let's take the word Balak. Right, Balak was the king of Moab. So Balak is Rashi Tevis. Balak is an abbreviation. The vase is V-Ahavta. And then the Lamed is L-Reyecha. And the Kuf is Kamocha. So Balak spells out V-Ahavta L-Reyecha Kamocha. So one of the Talmudim of the Rebbe, you know, I'm sorry, V-Ahavta uh, is a Vav and Balak is a Vase. L-Reyecha is Lamed, okay, that's the same. Kamocha is a kuf, and this is a kuf. So two of the three letters don't correspond. So the Rebbe said, ah, when you have Abbas Yisrael, you don't look so closely. <laughs> he says, you know, you don't look so much. <laughs> he says, you kind of accept people and work with them on that level. So, it's a, okay. so this is uh, the idea of what Sviras Omer, Sviras Omer is about. Now this actually explains an interesting idea of why Lagba Omer, these students stopped dying. Either they stopped permanently, or at least Lagba Omer was a vacation date where nobody died. You know that each week of the Omer is connected to uh, one of the Spheros and one ultimately one of the personalities. So for example, the first week of Sphira is Avraham, which is Chesed. Uh, the second week of Sphira is Yitzchak, which is Gevura, inner strength. The third week of Sphira is Yaakov, which is Tiferes, or beauty. The fourth week of Sphira is Moshe, which is Netzach, eternity. And the fifth week of the Sphira is Aaron, which is Hod, glory. And the sixth week of Sphira is Yosef, that is Yesod, foundation. And the seventh week of Sphira, the last week of the Omer, is Malchus, kingship, which is David. And this refers to various spiritual eliminations. Now, let's take Lagba Omer for a moment. Lagba Omer is in the fifth week of the fifth day. Right, 33. So what you have is you have four complete weeks, which is 28. Then you're in the fifth week, and this is the fifth day. So as a result, it is not only the week of Aaron, but it is the day of Aaron. It's a double Aaron dose. Aaron, Aaron. Hod, Shebahod, the glory of the glory. Now we know that Aaron's Midah, we read in Pirkei Avos, is Ohev Shalom, Verodev Shalom, a lover of peace, 
a pursuer of peace. Aaron exemplified at the highest level the notion of loving, caring, and making the other person look good. Remember that Chazal tell us that the way Aaron would make shalom between husband and wife is he would go over to the husband and say, oh, your wife is so sorry for what she did. And then the husband would, uh, then he'd go over to the wife and say, oh, your husband is so sorry. So each one thought the other one was the one who wanted to make up. And that made them make up. He made everybody look good. In fact, Aaron was more beloved than even Moshe. Moshe was, was greater in, in Nevoah. But it says that when Aaron died, everybody in Klal Yisrael mourned Aaron. Moshe was appreciated more by the great people, the great, great tzaddikim. They knew who Moshe Rabbeinu was. But Aaron was appreciated by men, women, children. Everybody appreciated Aaron, the peacemaker. So it turns out like this. If the deaths of the students of Rabbi Akiva was because they didn't show proper cover to each other. On the day of Aaron and on the week of Aaron, the spiritual koach that comes into the world is the spiritual koach of shalom and unity and achdos. And for that one day at least, the Talmidim were able to transcend their limitation. And that's why the death penalty stopped. According to some minhagim, it stopped permanently. According to others, it was just an off day. And then it went, it went back on again. Okay, so that's uh, kind of why, why Lagba Omer has that great significance. By the way, the other thing we say about Lagba Omer, that this is the day that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochoi died, died, and revealed the Zohar, etc. Uh, that has a bit of a controversial history. Uh, that is based on a passage in the Ari's writings from Rafhaim Vital, but some say it was based on a, a mistake, a printer's mistake. Uh, that it's not Yom Shemes, but Yom Simchas. It's not the day that Rav Shemrechoi died, it's the day of Simcha of Rav Shemrechoi that he revealed the Zohar, but there's no proof that he actually died on that day. Anyway, uh, needless to say, uh, last year, of course, everybody remembers that at Meiron was an awful, awful tragedy in Meiron. Uh, in which uh, 44 uh, Kedoshim died. And uh, this year, they're hoping to open up Meiron and have people go. And, uh, you know, hopefully, God willing, there should be no, uh, no one should be hurt and everyone should uh, go B'Shalom and come, uh, come uh, B'Shalom. But they're, they're, they, are not show, they are not closing down Meiron. I can understand that people would be afraid to go, but I'll tell you the truth. But uh, the year after an accident will be the safest it'll ever be. I mean, what happens, I mean, this is human nature, unfortunately, that after tragedy, we become very, very vigilant. Uh, and then when things go well for a long time, people then cut corners and they get a little more careless. So uh, the truth is now is a very safe time. In fact, uh, same thing with everything. Uh, right after a terrorist attack, an area is very safe, actually, because they're... They have gazillions of, of people around. Uh, things get more dangerous when we become less, uh, less vigilant. Okay, so now let me talk a little bit about another holiday, quotation marks, uh, that's coming up. Uh, and that is uh, Yom HaTzma'ut. Uh, and Yom HaTzma'ut, uh, Israeli Independence Day, the 5th of Eeyore. So it's very interesting that last week, uh, you recall, uh, we had a Memorial Day in the Israeli calendar called Yom HaShoah 
which is Holocaust Memorial Day, the 27th of Nisan. And this week, on Wednesday, is it Wednesday? Yeah, Tuesday night, Wednesday, we have Yom HaZikaron, which is also a mourning day in memory of the soldiers who died in the Israeli wars. So don't confuse it. Yom HaShoah is Holocaust Memorial. Yom HaZikaron uh, is a memory of the Israeli soldiers. In both, there is this um, siren that rings where you're supposed to stand at attention. Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, if you are a religious Jew and you are in public, you absolutely must stand at attention. It is a tremendous chilul Hashem for a religious Jew to ignore what other people are doing. And then people will look at religious Jews and say, oh, they don't care. If, on the other hand, uh, you're in a shir or you're in the privacy of your home, this is not a halakhal emotion b'sinai. So even though... Uh, you know, many Israelis will stand up even if they're privately in their house. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people they have to be machmer in that way. But if you're in a public place, absolutely. It, it's very, I mean, sometimes you see uh, Haredi people who don't pay attention uh, to the siren, and that is very, very insensitive and, and very wrong. Now, let's go over a little history about those two days first, then I'll talk about Yom Ha'atzmut a little bit. Why was the 27th of Nisan chosen to memorialize the Holocaust. So this is actually very controversial. The 27th of Nisan was the day in Hebrew of the final downfall and destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto. And uh, the founders of the State of Israel in 1948 wanted to designate that date as the memorial of the Shoah. Now, that sounds innocuous. I mean, I, mean, I mean, good, they picked a date. That was a significant date, so that's a date that we, we commemorate. But there are two problems with it. One is a halachic problem, which may not be the biggest problem in the world, but it is a problem. And that is, in the month of Nisan, you're not supposed to make sad occasions. So you don't pick a day in Nisan to commemorate the Shoah, because, uh, in fact, it's the opposite of Yom HaTzmut. Yom HaTzmut is they make a happy day of celebration during the Omer, and Yom HaShoah is they make a sad day of commemoration during the month of Nisan. But the ideological problem is a little more deeper, and it's hard to understand, but when that date was chosen to commemorate the Holocaust, there were many Holocaust survivors who were deeply hurt. And here you have to know a little bit about Israeli history. And that is, the Zionists who founded the State of Israel were very much into the notion that the Gullus Jew is passive, the Gullus Jew is like a sheep, the Gullus Jew gets pushed around by the Goyim. And we're going to be tough, we're going to make our army, and we're not going to be pushed around anymore. That's why the Israeli persona to this very day is kind of tough guy. Don't push me around. And as a result, this is painful to say, there were Zionists, there were Israelis who were ashamed of the passivity by which Jews were led to their deaths. They would say, why didn't they fight? Why didn't they resist? Now, of course, that's a crazy question because how can you resist in a concentration camp? What do you have? And in truth, there was not much 
resistance to the Holocaust. The resistance was spiritual resistance, keeping mitzvot, being Moser Nefesh. But if you're talking about how many people in concentration camps rose against the Nazis to fight, there weren't that many. So as a result, the Zionists didn't want to honor those aspects of the Holocaust. They were looking for the one case, not too many cases, where Jews actually fought with weapons. That, of course, was the Warsaw Ghetto. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The people who fought in the Warsaw Ghetto certainly were heroes, and they died al Kiddush Hashem also. And they are worthy of being remembered. But the point was to single out the armed resistance as the heroes and to imply that those who passively went to their deaths like sheep were cowardly and didn't take initiative <coughs> is insulting the idea that Mesirat Nefesh has many, many forms. Sometimes it's the Mesirat Nefesh of fighting the enemy, and sometimes it's the Mesirat Nefesh of submitting to God's will when there's nothing else you can do, but you accept God's will with love. So as a result, there actually was a lot of controversy. Yom HaShoah, picking the 27th of Nisan as the paradigm event that you're going to honor was actually a bit hurtful uh, to other people. But okay, to, to Holocaust survivors. There aren't that many Holocaust survivors around anymore. It's been more than 70 years. Uh, but certainly in 1948, there were many, many, many Holocaust survivors. And today, there are a few, but you know, they're... Uh, very old. I mean, there, there would be uh, even the youngest ones would be in their nineties at this at this point. I don't know if any of you have relatives who are still survivors of the Shoah, but it is uh, it's the numbers are getting very very small, uh, as it were. Okay, so that's uh, Yom HaShoah. Now Yom HaZikaron is honoring the soldiers who died in Israel's wars. So let me tell you a beautiful story of Shlomo Zalman Orbach. Shlomo Zalman Orbach was a great uh, gadol, died around 25 years ago, here in Yerushalayim. And the story goes he, uh, that one of his Talmidim once said that he's going up to Tzfat to pray, to daven, at the graves of Tzadikim, right? You've been to Tzfat, you know, in Tzfat you have the Arizal and Rav Yosef Karo and the Alshech, you know, many, many great uh, Tzadikim in the uh, cemetery in Svat. <coughs> so Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach said, why do you have to go so far? You know, two or three hours. Whenever I want to daven by the grave of Tzadikim, this is what he said, I go to the military cemetery on Mount Herzl. You know, that, that's the last stop of the light rail. I, I, I forgot. And I go to the grave of a soldier who gave his life for Am Yisrael. And such a person who gave his life for the Jewish people and for Eretz Yisrael, that person is a tzaddik that you can pray by his kever. Now, there are two versions of the story, so I don't want to say which one is right. I don't know. One version is, he said, even if the soldier was not religious. And the other is, if the soldier was religious. So I, I, I don't want to, I, I can't tell you which version. But certainly, Rav Shlomo Zalman maintained that at least a religious chayel who gave his life to help the Jewish people is considered to be a tzaddik, a righteous person, that who's, uh, in, who, in whose marriage you can pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to answer. 
And I think it's an important idea because, as you know, uh, there's a bit of a controversy with the army right now. It's been for a few years. And that is, it used to be that uh, yeshiva students were automatically exempt from military service. And now the law basically is that they have to register and they may be drafted, etc. And, some, and that's, that's why we get all these protests. That's why they're always blocking buses. And uh, I'm sure you've been in blocked buses uh, maybe more than once. Uh, I've missed uh, weddings. I've missed a lot of things because of these uh, traffic jams and everything else. But all of this is uh, mainly yeshiva students who are protesting these government laws. No, no. Well, well, maybe Americans joined it, but Americans have nothing to... Right, in other words, people who are Israelis. In other words, Americans have nothing to be afraid of. Americans aren't going to be drafted. They're not Israeli citizens. But if you're a yeshiva student that's an Israeli citizen, uh, you can be drafted into the army. Uh, and there was a big machlokas. I mean, I don't want to get into uh, uh, the politics of it. Uh, there are rabbis, majority of rabbis, who say register and then work out an exemption. Uh, there's another group that says we are not going to register, we're not going to give any legitimacy, and those are the ones who create all the riots and, and everything else. That Rav Chaim Kanevsky Zatzal was very much against uh, the rioting or the disruption. He said it was a chilul Hashem and it should not be done. Uh, so that, that's a machlokas within the Haredi world as to what the appropriate uh, response uh, would be to this. Uh, but as a result uh, of, this, uh, of this contention, and this fear that yeshiva students are going to be drafted into the army. Uh, so as a result, there's been a lot of disrespect to soldiers. Sometimes you may have a religious soldier who will go into a shul to Davin Mincha during the week, and people might spit at him. People might, uh, you know, chase him out. They might say, you're not welcome here. And that's an awful, awful idea, because the truth of the matter is that to every chayal, and this is whether religious or non-religious, whether you think yeshiva students should go to the army or not, and let's assume they shouldn't go to the army because we need people learning Torah. Agreed. But if somebody is in the army and they're risking their lives, you have to have gratitude. You have to have appreciation. You have to have respect. Uh, the same thing is true for policemen, for firemen, uh, for garbage collectors. Right? In order to maintain a religious life, there's a lot of things that have to be done, right? We need people to collect garbage. We need street cleaners. We need police. We need firemen. We need soldiers. And to simply say, oh, they're not religious, so they don't count. They're worthless, is a lack of gratitude. And uh, the very definition of a Jew, Yehudi, is a grateful person. Yehudi comes from Todah. Thank you, right? Leah called her fourth son Yehuda because she said, Hapam Hashem. I am grateful to Hashem. Okay, so that's an important idea, the idea of gratitude, Okay, but now we come to the fifth of ER itself, which is Yom HaTzmod. So Yom HaTzmod is celebrated in different ways. Uh, in Israel, it's a big secular holiday, great, great holiday. In Meya Sharib, <laughs> they put up uh, black flags and they say uh, this is the uh, Actually? oh yeah they put up black flags where they say some of the stores now the stores stores have to be closed by law so it's a legal holiday so stores have to be closed but Meir uh, when they close the stores they'll say something like close because of death in the family you know, whatever it is. They'll, 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 black flags 
Huh? Why black flag? No, this is the mourning of Ayla's tragedy, uh, etc. Um, so there are so so there are really three. There are three different ways of approaching it. There are people who celebrate it. There are people who treat it as a tragedy. And there are people who, you know, they don't do anything. You know, they're kind of, uh, it's not, a, not an important day. So let's go over just a little bit of the background just so you'll understand the different approaches. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not referring to secular celebrations. That's uh, secular is secular. But within Torah, within a Torah framework, what are the different ways that, that we understand it? So first, let me just bring, go, go to the earliest sources here. The earliest sources is a very important argument between Ramban, well, Rambam and Ramban, Maimonides and Nachmanides. Ramban, Nachmanides, actually says there's a mitzvah in the Torah. It is one of the 613 mitzvahs in the Torah to settle in the land of Israel to live in Israel. And when he says live in the land of Israel, he means not just live here, but to establish a Jewish government. People don't always realize that. Ramban says there's a mitzvah to live here, and there's a mitzvah to establish a Jewish government. This is Ramban. Maimonides, although he does praise the spiritual blessing of living here, does not count it as a mitzvah. Okay, so that's a big machlokas. Now, according to Ramban, nobody should be living in Chutz La'aretz. According to Ramban, people can live in Chutz La'aretz because they're not obligated to live in the land of Israel. I'm, I'm simplifying this now. Maybe in another share, I'll, I'll go over a lot, more, a lot more detail. So according to Ramban, the establishment of a Jewish state is actually a mitzvah. According to Rambam, it's not a mitzvah. Okay, so that's one aspect of it. According to Rambam, a Jewish state is a mitzvah. Of course, you get into a problem, is Israel a Jewish state? I mean, after all, there are Arabs, both in the Knesset and in the government, and what about the fact that the Jews, the Jewish people in the government, are largely not religious? Does Jewish state mean religious state? Or does Jewish state just mean Jewish state? Okay, something to think about. But, but at least according to Ramban, the notion of Jewish statehood is something that's religiously important. Now, at the other side of the coin, we have a Gemara in Maseches Kesuvos, Kuf Yud Aleph, 111, that actually says that when Hashem destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, He made the Jewish people swear that they would not try to regain Eretz Yisrael by force of arms by rebelling against the nations of the world. And they would await for Mashiach to come and redeem Am Yisrael. This is the Gemara in Kesuvos. And this is the basis of the Shita, the approach 
of Niture Karta. Now, Niture Karta means guardians of the wall. It's an extreme anti-Zionist religious organization that says that Jews are not allowed, they can live in Israel, and maybe it's even a good thing, but they're not allowed to have a state of Israel until the coming of Mashiach. But we couldn't live here if we didn't have Fighting for us. Well, Karta says that's not true because, I mean, imagine, uh, you know, uh, when, when Israel was under, Palestine, as it was called, was under Ottoman rule. So Jews came, not that many, but Jews were allowed to come. Under British, uh, not too many, that's true. There were restrictive immigration. But Karta, and maybe you're going to say they're living in a fantasy world, and maybe they are. Karta says, if we would just give up a state of Israel, turn it over to the Palestinians. Not a two-state solution, a one-state solution. And the one state would be a Palestinian state. They would be so welcoming. I mean, again, in some ways, this is almost insanity. They would welcome the Jews. They only hate the Jews because the Jews are trying to take away their lands. But if we would simply give in to the Palestinians... They would love us and they would embrace us. <laughs> that, that's what they say. Okay, okay, again, I, I, I think it's crazy, but this is what they say. But is the point, a, yeah? Is it an avera to risk other, people, other Jewish lives? They're so, like meeting up with Arab leaders and like... Yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, I, I, I think there's a difference between old Naturi Karta and new Naturi Karta. I think old Naturi Karta... They, did, they were not in favor of the state of Israel, but they, were ne- they would never meet with Arab leaders. They would never meet with enemies of the Jews. The new Naturi Karta has a lunatic, I, I will call them a lunatic fringe, in which some of them are even doing Holocaust denial now, you know, which is crazy. I mean, they, they, so what, what happened basically is that anti-Zionist, well, let me put it this way, the anti-Zionist idea that it's wrong to have a state of Israel until Mashiach comes. You might not like it, and I don't like it, but it does have a source in the Gemara, number one. It does have a source in the Gemara. Number two, uh, there were great gedolim that espoused it, such as the Satmar Rebbe. And I'll tell you something that might surprise you, but maybe not. This was the position of the Rebbe Rashab. This was actually the Chabad position if you go back to the 20s and the 30s, before there was a state of Israel, in which the Rebbe Rashab felt we should not push for a state of Israel. Again, living in Israel is good, but we should not push for a state of Israel until Moshiach. The truth of the matter is, although the Rebbe, the, the last Rebbe, was in fact we would call him a Zionist, but he was a Zionist for practical reasons. He was a Zionist because he said, there are so many Yidden in Eretz Israel, we have to be worried about their protection. Meaning, ideologically, he also held it would have been better had there not been a state of Israel. But once there's a state, we gotta deal with the Yidden that are living in the state and cannot endanger their lives. So the Naturi Karta position, you're not allowed to have a state of Israel until Mashiach comes, is not a lunatic position, meaning it was a position 
that many, many great people did maintain until 1948. After 1948, uh, some felt, including the Rebbe, that we have to protect the Jews that are here and we cannot endanger them. So we do have three different ways of viewing, well, four, I'll, I'll give you four different ways of viewing the state of Israel in a spiritual way. One way of viewing it is this is a great gift from Hashem that is part of the beginning of Mashiach. Meaning Mashiach, the messianic process, unfolds by bringing the Jews back to Israel and by giving them sovereignty. And this will eventually turn into Mashiachus. Okay, that's the messianic vision of the state of Israel. That's view number one. View number two says, we cannot call this a messianic vision because a lot of the people were not religious. They didn't keep the Torah. But we nevertheless are grateful to Hashem for giving us a way station. This is a little different. Both school one and school three, and school two, are grateful for the state of Israel, but one view looks at it as part of the messianic process. The other view looks at it as a gift Hashem has given us after the Holocaust. So we'll be able to keep ourselves strong and alive until Mashiach comes. So it's a, what you call a way station. Now, the third group says it's a sin. Not allowed to have it at all. Because until Mashiach comes, it is a rebellion against God to create statehood when you're still in a state of Golas. That's the Naturi Karta position. So you have Messianic, you have way station, you have prohibition. Three different views as to how you view the Almatzvah. Now let me point out that uh, between the messianic vision and the way station, we'll have some interesting repercussions. And that is the issue of, and here the Rebbe had an unusual sheet, I'll, I'll get to it. Are you allowed to give land back to the Arabs or the Palestinians? Not, not, I shouldn't say land back. Are you allowed to give away land to the Arabs or the Palestinians in order to try to make peace? Right? Israel has done that sometimes. Gaza. If you view Medinat Yisrael as part of the messianic process, then of course you cannot give back land because you're going backwards. Hashem is bringing you towards the Geula and you're moving in the other direction. That's crazy. If you view Eretz Yisrael as a gift, Hashem is giving me something to give me breathing room but it's not the unfolding of Geula, then one could understand pragmatically there might be some room for negotiation. Now, it is Yodua that the Rebbe did have a shita about giving back land. And as you know, many, many great rabbis in Eretz Yisrael permitted territorial concession. I include Rehovah Yosef, 
Uh, he said, Pikuach Nefesh, if you can save a life, give back land. Rav Shach. The Rebbe was very much against giving back land. He said, you cannot give back land. But I want to point out, this is extremely important. The reason the Rebbe gave was not the reason the Messianist gave. The Messianist would say, every inch of Eretz Yisrael is holy and we must give our lives before we give back an inch. That's what they say. The Rebbe Badafka didn't say that. It's very important that you understand this. The Rebbe said, the Rebbe actually agreed with the middle view. Saving life is more important than land. And if giving back land would save lives, you give back the land. But the Rebbe said, giving back land is not going to save lives. Giving back land is going to endanger lives. Giving back land will bring the enemy closer to your cities. Giving back land will show weakness. And once the Arabs see weakness, they will exploit. Again, I, I, I want to repeat this point. The Rebbe was not saying land is more important than life. The Rebbe was saying life is more important than land. But, the Rebbe said, when you give back land, you're endangering life. That's very different than the Messianic group. The Messianic group said, even if Jews are going to die, don't give back the land. That was not the Rebbe's cheshben. The Rebbe's cheshben was, this is how you save lives. Now I have to say, the Rebbe does not need, <laughs> does not need my, my haskama. But the truth of the matter is, uh, all, of the fa- all of the facts have shown us again and again and again and again that the Rebbe was 100% right. That territorial concessions, which Israel engaged in because they thought it would save lives and prevent attacks uh, on Jews, have always had the opposite effect. Okay, so the truth of the matter is, uh, people call it land for peace, but it hasn't been land for peace. It's been land for war. So, so if you ask the question, would the Rebbe be in favor of land for peace? My answer is, yes, he would be in favor of land for peace, but he said there's no such thing. <laughs> so, okay, so that's different. I, I want to draw that difference because people lump the Rebbe with the Messianic group when in fact it's a very very different orientation. The Messianic group was emphasizing the holiness of Eretz Yisrael which is a strong idea to be sure. The Rebbe was emphasizing Pikuach Nefesh and in a sense he was in agreement with the middle group that would give back the land because they also were looking at Pikuach Nefesh but they were assessing the facts Differently, they were saying, giving back land will save lives. The Rebbe said, no, it won't. Right? So it was much more of almost a factual question of, of, of prediction. Okay, so that's the issue of Yom Matzimut, meaning uh, if you have an Eturikarta Hashkafa, then by definition, you're not going to celebrate Yom Matzimut. This is a sinful Medina. You're not allowed to have it. You have to dismantle it. If, on the other hand, you view this as part of a messianic process, obviously it'll be a big, big chag, 
And even if you don't look at it that way, but you look at it as a gift that Hashem gave Am Yisrael in the aftermath of the Holocaust, uh, it's a time that one could be grateful. Now, it's true that governments are not so religious, and it's true that uh, this and that, but the truth is there's still a lot to be grateful for, you know, even with a non-religious government. Uh, the government supports Torah a lot, gives a lot of money to Torah. It creates an environment where we can learn and keep mitzvahs. Uh, the army uh, protects us. So one should be grateful, and I think Akara Satov is an appropriate emotion. Okay? Alrighty, so uh, you all be well, and I'm glad to see that my note uh, does work on Mondays too. I guess I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, next week we'll be back to our, our, regular, our regular time. Okay? Okay, be well. Chodesh Tov. Thank you.